I decided to make and give my life to a revolution to loving. And so I uh, came up with this first desire. How can I, in every single waking moment, be an instrument for peace and justice and care? And so I decided that was quite an easy decision, that I would be happy, disgustingly happy, every single second of my life. And that what I actually realized very quickly, what is it, that it was six qualities, happy, funny, loving, cooperative, creative, and thoughtful. And that I decided to do it because my mother gave me self-esteem. All I had then had to do was to do it. And so as an extreme extrovert, I went out there and was radiantly happy. And I noticed that of all the six qualities, it was love that was so difficult to get close to people in the very suspicious world around love. And that's because I had been clownish before I decided that I noticed that if I was clowning, that clowning was a trick to get love close. And so I've clowned every day for 49 years. And uh, maybe I'll quote your great humanist, Erasmus, who uh, said, uh, thus it comes about that in a world where men are differently affected towards each other, all are at one in their attitudes towards these innocents, these fools. All seek them out, keep them warm, give them food, give them aid as the need arises, and give them leave to say and do as they wish with impunity. So true it is that no one wishes to cause them harm, that even wild beasts, by a certain sense of their natural innocence, will refrain from doing them harm. How's it going today, Patcher? <laughs> Lars, it's the best day of my life. So you woke up this morning and what happened? Well, I, I knew that this was the best day of my life. Hey, sir, how's your day going? You know, thanks for asking. It's the best day of my life. Welcome to It's the Best Day of My Life, Patch Adams' journey to the Nobel Peace Prize nomination with Patch and Lars Adams. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and here in episode three, Patch's son Lars digs deep into Patch's childhood on his quest to find out how and why his dad went from anguished teenager with three suicide attempts to global clown peace worker leading a revolution of love, compassion, and healthcare equality. I can remember you saying you do remember like one or two conversations where he opened up about some of the pain and hardship he experienced in the Korean War? Yes. He, he was a real soldier, an officer there, and he saw a lot of combat, and, and he, it's really when he would weep. It's why mother often would discourage him from talking about it. She didn't want to hear horror stories. It would almost look like he wasn't telling them to me so much as the fact that I was listening, he told the stories like to the air and and he he often would would cry. I heard a story of where his best friend gave his life to him to save his life. And that was his probably saddest story. I remember you telling me that his best friend took a grenade for the bunker. 
That's very possible, the story I would tell and where he, you know, when a grenade is thrown in a foxhole and you don't have time to throw it out, it wasn't uncommon for one of the soldiers to bury it in their belly. I knew when I refused the military, I wasn't a belly barrier. I can't imagine, you know, like I can I can imagine why he would drink away his sorrows and feel so numb after experiencing that. Like I cannot imagine my best, one of my best friends taking a grenade for me. Like that would, I don't know that how I could recover from that. He never really talked about World War II. He talked about Korea and I think the fact that it didn't go well in Korea was another reason he talked about it. And and he probably was sorry we went to Korea. The way he talked and showed his sadness around it was clearly a lot of why I came to Virginia and became a pacifist. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. Here was a manly man. He was a big man. He was a football player. and. Nothing took his spirit like stories of Korea. I need a happy, funny, thoughtful mind to keep me loving, cooperative, creative all the time. Then you know I'll be feeling fine. I need a happy, funny, thoughtful mind to keep me loving, cooperative, and creative all the time. Then you know, it's like that sun will shine. I am very proud to announce that this year I've been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. If I think of all the things I've done with my life, peace is even stronger effort on my part than medicine. Yes, I mean, the choice to be happy and playful and loving and funny all the time was a peace gesture. The clown trips that we do, a peace gesture. Making medicine free, a peace gesture. Can you remember any stories that your mom told of him or their meeting? I had to uh, fish for them after coming back to the U.S. We were in the U.S. when he was in Korea, and that was four years. We were on military bases, Fort Hood, Texas, and Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and then went to Germany and and then came home after he died. How many years in Germany? Seven. Do you remember what his death was like? You know, he had a heart attack. He went to the hospital and died because he was heartbroken that and he was a chain smoker of three packs a day and, and three packs a day holy filterless, sh- filterless camels oh man you know that was a soldier's life wow three pa- your house must have just reeked of t- tobacco well and mother smoked tobacco and usually the guests smoked tobacco so it did You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. 
And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. In a repeated national survey, doctors in all branches of medicine, doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Once again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Why not change to Camels for the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment? See how Camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good tasting a cigarette can be. And while man went home a year early to Bullis Prep, which was a prep school for the Naval Academy in Maryland. And so I was home that last year with just me and mom and dad. So Wildman was away when dad died. Right. Do you remember how your mom felt when he died? You know, I don't have exact pictures in my mind. I was dealing with it myself. Yeah, well, what was that like for you? Well, I hadn't had people die really in my life. And so it, he was my first personal death. And it, there was a lot of weeping, a lot of crying, and, and I could tell that the crying a lot of it was that I didn't know this person and I wouldn't get a chance to know him. So Patch makes a lot of videos on the human experience. Here's an excerpt from one on grieving. Grieving. One could grieve over losing a job and whatever, but I think let's talk about grieving with a human's death. Very early in my medical career, I, I started to see that grieving was a celebration. Because if somebody dies and you didn't have a meaningful relationship with them, I don't see you grieve. Grieving is often the point that you have a meaningful relationship and that though grieving in expression is weeping, shaking, being even immobilized, that grieving is a celebration that this person was in your life at a moment when you have no real protection against its full expression. Everybody I have loved that has died is with me in this moment. If I die, survive me with such sheer force that you waken the fury of the pallid and the cold. From south to south, lift your indelible eyes. From sun to sun, dream through your singing mouth. I don't want your laughter or your steps to waver. I don't want my heritage of joy to die. Don't call up my person. I am absent. Live in my absence as if in a house. Absence is a house so vast that inside you will pass through the walls and hang pictures on the wall. Absence is a house so transparent that I, lifeless, will see you living. And if you suffer my love, I will die again. Well, I'm not going to grieve long enough for you to die again. Thanks for the intensity that gave me this celebration of loss and to see you're still here. There was 
pretty much instantly packing and moving back to the U.S., taking his body back to, you know, he's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And so we went home with him. You, you leave school, you know, it was reflective time. And by that time I was 16 and getting reflective. I'd also been drunk a couple of times. I was a pretty heavy drinker in, I'd say, 16 parts of 15 and in high school and college. And what were your drinks of choice? Beer. Light beer? A German. I didn't know light beer. I don't think there was any. It was German mm-hmm. beer. Oh, German beer. Came back and it was bad beer, you know, paps and schlitz. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a beer snob because you were the first beers you drank were in Germany. And you probably remember the beer snobbery I had. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't. If I went and bought a six pack, I didn't want to get Paps. Parties there was Paps and Budweiser, Schlitz. What a blue ribbon day! Open a beer. What do you hear? Why it sounds like Pabst. Listen here. Pabst. Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. Well, let me tell you something about Germany. We were in Kaiserslautern, or Vogelway, which is the largest military base outside of the U.S. So there were several hundred thousand Americans in this area. So the high school was large. And then two years before dad died, two, I'm going to say maybe three, we moved to Blutacher Strasse inside Kaiserslautern, and that's where officers lived. It was only where officers on Blutacher and Fliegerstrasse, and we had a team club, and I spent most of my time in the team club, and as far as beer goes, we were right in Kaiserslautern, the town, so you went down and right next to a brewery called Bender Beer. So you can imagine bending an elbow for Bender Beer. And uh, so that's when Mother first saw me drunk. We met Patch's older brother, Wildman, in the last episode. Here he is again. Mom and Dad were not helicopter parents. We, you know, we'd come home from school, we'd leave. We wouldn't even have to ask, and we'd come back at dark or dinner, which we usually had very European style late. And, you know, so we were out from the earliest possible. I mean, from, you know, sixth grade on, we were were out. I mean, when my dad got, when your grandfather got promoted to major, we moved from the base, Kaiserslautern in Germany, which is the, at the time, the largest concentration of Americans outside of America. We moved from the base where we were living on base to uh, field grade officers, majors and above, on the economy in the in the in the, in the city of Kaiserslautern. And in town, of course, they had a red light district. Not supposed to go there. Where did we go? The minute we wanted to, we, we went straight there. When I walked up, now we never engaged them, but we were curious. We, we were talking with them, joking with them, clowning with them. And of course, back then, um, Truman integrated everything in 1948. So we went to school, integrated school. And thank God, 
who wants to go with a bunch of white people? And, but they, but the service really hadn't adjusted yet. So in town, there was the bars and places where the black people went and bars and places where white people went. And where did we went? Where did we go? We went to the bars where the black people were. A, because all the brand new music, rock and roll from America came to their jukeboxes first, before the PX, before the white. That's where it was. And that was where action was. And we were never threatened, never felt anything but welcomed. Then there was, there was a jazz club particularly. And we would go and they would ask us, you know, seventh, eighth grade to go to the PX to buy the new jazz albums, take it to the jazz club down in the red light district where if we'd been caught, we'd have been taken to the MPs, slapped on the hand, sent home, and the old man would, would catch the garbage. And, but that's where we really started to like jazz. We, they couldn't get the jazz. This is a, a German jazz club. And so, but we could get the jazz records at the PX. And PX is the... Post Exchange, uh, the Walmart at the time. Okay. Uh, on the Army base. On the Army base. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had cigarette ration card, booze ration card. You had a little paper. Every time you bought, you had so many a month, you tear one off and you, you could get one out. They had three or four times a year a little carnival come to Kaiserslautern. And when I was 16, I got a tobacco ration card. So I'd go into the tobacco store, buy cigarettes with my ration card. We'd take it down to where they were setting up the carnivals and sell the cigarettes to them to get money to come back to the carnival to have fun at the carnival. And, uh, you know, they had wooden roller coasters and all the things that you... But this was still just right after the war, so it wasn't, you know, it was still interesting. We were self-generated pretty much from sixth grade on. You know, my mom and dad were probably the most functional alcoholics I've ever seen. I mean, there was never any violence. I never heard damn or hell at home. Uh, nobody ever raised their voice. But he was self-medicating from living through two wars. And, you know, Mom was less so, but still, that's what they did. So we were out having fun or exploring, let's say. They had a teen club up there too, and it was special. Of course, a teen club in the base and a teen club in the Fliegerstrasse area, which is what it was called. Always had competitions, a dance competition, pine ping pong, all that kind of stuff. But they also, every every city in Germany had an underground bunkers because everybody was being bombed all the time Any, anytime anything happened it was in the bunkers that's where they store stuff but when we moved uh, into the town we broke through the bricked up entrance to some of the bunkers and we would go inside the bunkers and exploring and one of the games that we played was anybody who wanted to you had to volunteer at the at the team club they would go and get a half an hour head start to go into the bunker. I mean, this was miles. I mean, there was no light. And the, the rules were you couldn't have a flashlight. And then a half an hour later, all the other guys from the teen club would go down there. And if the guy could make it out of the bunker back to the teen club without getting caught, everybody who was participating would have to walk down Fliegerstrasse nude. 
But if we caught him, he would have to walk down the street near. And that, we probably did that three times. And always the guy got caught. And then, even, you know, it was midnight, everybody was asleep and it was no big deal, but he still had to walk down the street near. Here's Patch on the teen club. The teen club was a lot of, it was 15 and 16, and so it was teenagers. There were a lot of dances. I loved rock and roll, so we danced, and I, I probably was a good dancer. A lot of guys that aren't good dancers don't like to dance. The teen club parties was, were almost every weekend. You know, you couldn't drink beer in the teen club, but you could certainly go outside. And there was ping pong tables, and then there was the dance party with Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and Little Richard and, you know, the... Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock, was number one record for a year and a half. That was when when partying started, because you had a lot more freedom at home at, at, at the teen club than you did at the party. Sometimes the teen club even went on road trips to for skating or skiing and that sort of thing. And they were always, yep, yep, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. Then at puberty, certain glands begin to work, and our bodies begin to change. But where are all these glands? Yeah. And what's puberty? Puberty? Well, puberty's a lot of things. Mainly, though, it's a time of change. For you, it means your bodies are changing from boys to men. You mean like having to shave? Say, when's a guy start shaving anyway? Oh, there isn't any special age. You're all going to start at different times. That's because everybody matures according to his own body's rules. I also entered science fairs then. I won a a big prize in a science fair. The first science fair I entered, I operated on a frog and showed it was basically... I was trying to find Ringer's solution, which is a solution you can suspend the frog's heart in and it still beats. Um, But it was hard to get in Germany, so I faked it and faked experiments with it. And that was the first science fair, and I won a prize there. Wait, but is that... So you cut open a live frog, right? And took out the heart and suspended it in this solution. I remember you telling a story that the frog woke up from the anesthesia at some point and started jumping around the science fair with its guts falling out. That was also going on there at the science fair. I just love the image of you chasing a frog that is it coming would out. And the organs would, would drop down from their body. <laughs> Back to Wild Man. You know, he went to the spiritual, uh, intellectual area that nobody would go. Often I would go to the physical area where nobody would go. Together we were one. We had it covered. Back to Patch. So did you speak German in that time? Well, ich spreche ein bisschen Deutsch because everyone had to take German. Well, I really like when you say the German town. So can you speak a little German that you remember? Ich wohne im Kaiserslautern. So is that where you developed your love of um, bratwurst. Jawohl, jawohl. Ich, ich habe bratwurst sehr gern. You could get for one one mark, 
which was 25 cents, you could get a bratwurst, mit senf, which is mustard, on a brochen, which is a small loaf of bread, and boy, that makes me want to have one right now. What are you eating? Savory, succulent, McGarry sausages. Want a bite? Yeah! He's a sharp salesman. So this reminds me um, of a sandwich. You, I'm sure you probably still make it. You used to eat. Do you? What's your bizarre bratwurst sandwich with like peanut butter? Maybe. Well, I I did do peanut butter and jelly and cheese sandwiches, and there was a period when we tried to think of all the things, but that was back in when we moved back to. America made sandwiches with a lot of uh, stuff. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just have childhood memories of you making weird bratwurst sandwiches with like, yeah, anyways. We went to Germany nine years after the war ended. Just a clarification, Patch is referring to World War II. There were manly teenagers wanting rock fights with German teenagers. Mm. And I didn't like going to them. Uh, wild man went to some, but I, I, I didn't hate German people. But there was the undercurrent of this was the enemy and we defeated the enemy. And, and the settling in Germany was because we defeated Germany. NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Around the world in Hanover, Germany, General Eisenhower visits troops of another international army, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's military forces, as they climax the biggest joint maneuver since the war. Over 100,000 men from seven nations take part. General Eisenhower calls the games staged to give the troops of various nations a chance to work together in the field, an outstanding success. And so there were military bases, U.S. military bases all over Germany. You could hear talk of hatred of Germans in school. From your teachers? More from fellow students. And and just, uh, you know, how teenagers are. You can hate the people in the next city, the other football team, and that sort of thing. Okay, most people operate from a syntax of because. Because of what my father did to me, because of my age, my race, my gender, my economic status, because of my disease, because, 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 because. I am a because. The syntax of the little formula I'm giving you is so that I perform so that my intention is put forward that I wake up, I'm clear about my intentions, and then I'm just choosing performances and seeing how they did and all through the day, and then I go to bed. It actually works. It requires focusing. Okay, instead of going, oh, poor me, I failed this, or I lost my car keys, or whatever that is, you're going, I will be loving I will love life, I will not watch TV, whatever intentions you choose, and then you do them. 
So after living in Germany, teenage Patch and his family moved back to the U.S., south of the Mason-Dixon line. Your experience at school, you were in an all-white school? A public school that was all white, and it was in Arlington. Arlington, Virginia. Arlington, Virginia. Wakefield High. It was a huge high school. Um, I think over a thousand people in my graduating class. And, you know, I, I was a nerd. I did a lot of reading at home. And I did start dating Donna Jewel Sullivan as a senior. And we dated up until freshman in college. Okay. So, and, but going back, you were on integrated schooling on army bases, right? Right. And so you went from integrated schooling your whole life to 16 coming back and living in Arlington, Virginia and going to an all-white public school. So what what do you remember of that experience of that culture shock? Well, I mean, a lot of it I internalized and hence was hospitalized for ulcers. And I, I noticed that speaking up, I was also beaten up. So after school, you know, it didn't really happen in Germany, but in, in the U.S., I was beaten up after school. But do you remember what that experience was like? Well, it was racist who would use the N-word, and I was an N-lover. I don't like to say the word. Of course not. We're not going to say the word. You know, I was not a manly man, so if I heard the word, I didn't beat them up. I corrected them, and then often they didn't like that. Not all of them beat me up, and usually my style, if somebody tried to beat me up, was to fall on the ground and saying, please don't hit me, you big brute. And so that often defused the situation. Help! Help! I'm out! Save me! Save me, Stanley! A mountain after me! Save me! Grow up, Sydney. Be a man! But I can't help it, Stanley! All elephants are afraid of mice! Humbug! Just an old superstition! Act tough! Look tough! Be tough! Like this! It was during that time that I was reading about segregation and about the U.S. and about, you know, I'm trying to understand my dad and what the war did to him. I can remember you telling me um, that one of your defense mechanisms um, in this period of your life is that when you would hear somebody in the classroom say the N-word, you would scream. I did sometimes do that because what I saw is that the teacher would ask me what I'm doing and then I would tell them that it was a commitment I made to dealing with the N-word to scream in class because I thought the teacher would discourage people from using it because they didn't want it interrupted and my teachers actually I think most of them liked that. I did that. They liked somehow stopping the N-word being said and that sort of thing. There was a lot of activism at that time. 
and through Martin Luther King and and that sort of thing. And so, and I infiltrated the, I went to KKK meetings. How old were you when you did that? 16. I was trying to understand hatred. I would not correct them because I was a very quiet person watching what happened. And, and how did that affect you going to that meeting? Well, I saw that it was prevalent, that it was, that it wasn't a small hatred. It's still a big hatred. I wasn't very much of an activist, except that I, I hated it. it. It was hate and hate for color, which seemed so. And at the same time, I was falling in love with jazz, where most of the musicians were black and merely loving jazz and going to jazz concerts. Listening to music was a very much jazz and classical, but more jazz than classical at that time. And I did a lot of reading. I, I found out that reading was something that really was engaging me thoughtfully, especially deep shit. Like what? Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain sticks out big time. I want to go back to how how this transition and the exposure to segregation led you to be suicidal. You know, my, my mother, she was not really a segregationist, but she grew up in a culture in the South all of her life of segregation. And she didn't like me being beaten up or the having being suicidal. So she would try to have, let's say, straight mom conversations with me. Mother was not a fighter kind of person. No, she didn't yell in fighting. She was a loving fighting person. And her brothers, both of her brothers were racist. And, and in fact, her sister was pretty much uh, of a more minor racist, but still a racist, and and that I was causing trouble in that circle. And so I'm, I know there were times that I was not invited to do collective family things. And at the same time, I was developing a lot of humor because I found out that humor was a way to cut back on being bullied. And so I, I started being goofier and, and then, you know, I, uh, with senior year, the summer of the senior year, I think is when I had my first dates with Donna and she was my first love of my life, Donna Jewel Sullivan. Were you dating her when you were suicidal? I was, it was you know, it was nothing like the romance I have with Susan or even with your mother. Still went to a lot of concerts and went to marches and was thinking about being a doctor. Then my senior year and planning to go to Medical College of Virginia or, well, not medical college. I went to GW as an undergraduate, which was a local I lived at home, which was cheaper. Patch, before we get to college, I I want you to try to remember, like, 
when, when you were suicidal and you said you had had three hospital visits, can you paint us a picture of what led to the hospitalization? Well, I think however seriously mother took the kill myself thing, that that led to the hospitalization. So you th- saying you were going to kill yourself? Yes, that I that I didn't want to live in a world of violence and injustice. And, you know, my brother was in military academy. He was there and and so he was more the manly man and I was more the fruitcake. And and so I, you know, I hung out with people in the jazz society. They were men and read books and went to jazz concerts. Um, did your mom commit you to the mental hospital? I want to say yes, because I don't know of any other uh, other thing it could have been. It could have been a doctor's recommendation, which mother would have instantly bought into. And so I was usually there a week to 10 days, and then I would come out. I hated what the medicines did to my imagination. I was placed on Librium, which is a cousin to Valium, which you've probably heard of. I had a lot of solace in the arts. Music and reading and theater were all my friend. And nature was also becoming my friend. We had cats, which I loved, and saw that they were often closer to me than people. Um, Patch? Yeah. I I guess we never actually like fully talked about your uh, being suicidal um, because I was under the impression that you had actually tried to commit suicide and that it wasn't um, just you saying that you would. I didn't think of uh, dramatic gun shooting suicides or or running in front of a car i thought i you know i'm a coward i thought i would be hurt so i thought of taking the pills i was on suicide if i took them and told mom then she would take me to the hospital and they would give me something to throw up the pills so that happened yeah so there there was a moment where you just took all the pills in the bottle right and then you told your mom that you did that? Yes. Okay. Now, the truth is, I didn't, I needed a mentor, really, if I look back on it. I didn't have a mentor, a, a thoughtful adult that would guide me as I've guided so many people. As I mentioned, Patch has an abundance of useful videos on being a human. Here's an excerpt from one You know, if, if you're having a rough day or a rough life, you know, just start yelling out while you're walking down the street, go, arms and legs, all right, arms and legs. I estimate I'm grateful for 10 billion things, and if this camera woman would let me, I'd list all 10 billion of them, but I don't think we're going to work that way, because this is a YouTube. And then, uh, yeah, after the last one, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech really showed me another way. And I turned around and instead became an activist. Where before that, 
I would go to marches, but I didn't have the activist mind. The March on Washington, a massive American protest for civil rights, took place in 1963. Just a reminder, it's when Martin Luther King gave his groundbreaking I Have a Dream speech. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I mean, my memory is clearer about the anti-war marches for Vietnam, but I, I just remember feeling glad I was with people who wanted it different. I mentioned that at 18 in my last hospital, I decided to never have another bad day. I think I even mentioned six qualities, that I would be who I am would be happy, funny, loving, cooperative, creative, and thoughtful. And by being focused on who I am, I think I've done that now for 54 years. And boy, was it the right decision for me. This seems like a huge moment in your life where you realized you weren't alone in wanting big change. Right, and since mom wasn't there and dad was gone, obviously, I met people that were sympathetic, but it was more the times that that I felt great about and just being with people that all we're saying is give peace a chance and and uh, anti-racist songs and, and that sort of thing. It was very powerful and it changed me, really. I, I mean, I, I'm smart. And so I saw that, that Martin was using language in a way that motivated people. And I certainly became a person whose language, I think, has motivated people. I did a lot more sharing during the anti-war marches because I was, in a way, I went from child to, to adult. I was more of a fragile child in those early times, not knowing really what to do. And here were adults doing something. And so I was going to do with them. And between then and the Vietnam years, which were a few years later, I had been reading a lot of things and smart things. I wasn't reading to escape, I was reading to understand. And there were books like Black Like Me and, and so many other things and, and meeting people, sometimes fleetingly at a march and saying hi and 
chatting. And it, once I heard Martin speak, I pursued the life of an activist. And I always had mom's love at home. She liked that I got good grades, and I think that helped her forgive me from being an ever-blossoming activist. So in a way, the first year after high school, I kind of gave up a, gave up a year, and that's why when I entered GW, I wanted to get into medical school after three years because by that time I felt I had wasted a year. You know, a year where I was re reading, I had a first full-time job, and I was meeting people and, and becoming the person I was by the time I started at GW. And those three years were very foundational because the Vietnam War was becoming an item of contention as well. I broke up with Donna. This is around the time you started working at the Navy file clerks? Yes, it was about that time. So Patch's first full-time job was as a file clerk at the Navy Federal Credit Union, where he met his lifelong best friend, Lewis. In the next episode, we'll get into Patch and Lewis's theatrical camaraderie and how their youthful antics in conservative America led to Patch's public clowning career in the most dangerous and dire places on Earth. It's the Best Day of My Life is produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios. Produced by Lars and Patch Adams, Rainbow Valentine, and Thessaly Lerner. Produced and edited by Stuart Hooper. Directed by Thessaly Lerner. Scored, mixed, and mastered by Ryan Reeves. Narrated by me, Rainbow Valentine. Music by Hope for a Golden Summer. Will Collins, The Ukulele, and Noodle McDoodle. Theme song and Patch's Virtue Rag by Noodle McDoodle. Special thanks to Derek Busby, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our audience. This series is produced by a team of volunteers passionate about sharing stories that make the world more awesome. We're working for free because we believe in this story. If you can help us in any way, swing by rainbowvalentine.com and send us an email. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for episode four. thoughtful mind you keep me loving cooperative and creative all the time then you know i'll be feeling fine i need a happy funny thoughtful mind to keep me loving cooperative and creative all the time then you know it's like that sun will shine so many troubles in the world I don't know what to say Oh, uh, what can you do? I just want to feel good And you need a happy, funny, thoughtful mind Keep me loving, cooperative, creative all the time Oh, and I'll be feeling fine Ba-da-ba-ba-ba